Agencies across the federal government are turning to applied science and technology to modernize and improve mission delivery. In our podcast, Tackling Government Challenges Through Science and Technology, sponsored by Noblis, we'll be presenting a series of interviews featuring federal executives overseeing various programs and overcoming challenges with innovation. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Ever since the first airplane took to the air in Kitty Hawk, the skies have been getting busier. NASA's Sky for All program seeks to make room for all of the potential 21st century modes of aircraft, the drones, air taxis, helicopters, private planes, and airliners that all need to coexist safely. For more on the program, I spoke with Sky for All senior technologist Gene Yu, starting with what the program is all about. Sky for All is a vision for the mid-century for the future airspace and all the possibility that it can hold for us. Um, For Sky for All, we're envisioning um, those things that bring technology to bear in terms of more highly autonomous vehicles, um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, and those things that can help us optimize for a more sustainable future airspace. I guess for the last 100 years or so, whenever the first airplane, more than 100 years, almost a century and a quarter, took off, the airspace has been getting busier and more crowded, and so much of the effort has been devoted to ensuring the safety of airplanes, mostly commercial, but lots of general aviation. I'm getting the sense that Sky for All envisions a lot more types of craft and a lot more things in the air that fly that are not general aviation, you know, beach bonanzas and 737s. Yeah, <laughs> we're trying to um, really embrace diversity. And for Sky for All, the vision is how can we maintain and uh, retain and enhance safety through technology, even though the skies are becoming more complex. At the same time, looking at how with more information that the airspace can become more integrated, um, um, that includes and becomes inclusive of the diverse operations that we will see in the future as we see human creation kind of tap into all the possibility of, of using the sky. Right. So what what's the uh, picture that you have in mind, say, for, I don't know, 10 years, 25 years from now, when, I mean, it's a little bit slower in coming than I think people thought this idea of drones bringing hot dogs and that kind of stuff. You know, I just got back from Europe. There are, there are companies tri- uh, doing trials in other, um, other countries now, uh, doing um, DoorDash-type deliveries and trying to demonstrate that those types of um, operations are efficient as well as they're sustainable. Um, I, I think that if when we look at it here from a standpoint of 5, 10, 15, 20 years, what, what does that mean? I think in the next five years, we continue learning um, in airspace um, and we learn in volumes that are set aside for those new types of operations. In 2035, the FAA is planning to have matured their infocentric mass, and that is basically um, – uh, a state where all the digital data will be available in a more integrated information environment so that there will be more situational awareness and ability for um, navigation service providers to be able to see all the operations in the sky within an area and then be able to better inform those operations when you add new diverse operations um, or that they may um be able to better operate within a volume. In 2035, the idea is still, though, with that information, you're still operating within des- designated volumes. And so even if you have a new operations like a drone, you're given a, a space or a volume in which you're to operate. Um, the FAA calls that XTM. You've probably heard of um, UTM, which is unmanned transportation management. And so that within that volume, be, you'll be able to have sufficient data to manage 
um, operation safely. What we're thinking with Skyfall is beyond 2035, beyond having a digital data available and you have an um, integrated data environment, how can you now create an adaptive environment which takes that data and puts the, all the um, artificial intelligence and machine learning that you can on it that allows you to integrate between volumes and so that there can be more um, mix and integration of diverse vehicles within larger volumes. And so we see that kind of growing over time in the 2035 to 2040, 2045, until it can truly become seamless in mid-century. Um, we feel like the real benefit of that is that you can get total performance um, optimization because now you are still um, um, fixed into volumes. And so if you can get total performance, that helps us from a sustainability standpoint. It helps with optimization within regions. And um, so the, 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 the big challenge for us is then how do we take that data, um, make sure we can take the systems of systems learning, architect something that's more like an open adaptable architecture. Um, one of the things that we talk about as an analogy is um, the internet. Um, you know, that back in 1969, ARPANET was set up as a seed or the kernel for the Internet. And the World Wide Web became kind of the first service on that on that um, that kernel. And the World Wide Web then grew to the capability for um, not only um, academia and government to use, but the public to use. And then you end up having um, Facebook and you end up having um, uh, an uh, Apple and, and a cell phone development developer uh, discern how they could put internet in the hands of people wherever they are. And so um, you, you see how it grows organically with all the creativity inside of, of the whole commercial space. If you can um, design the architecture correctly and in a way that it's open architecture. In fact, um, even with the internet, when you think about the iPad, the iPad, when it was introduced, um, I think it was 2010, about 2011, a year later, it was in flight decks. And so that's just how fast technology can be adopted and implemented and put into better use for optimization for human use um, whenever the architecture is set up. So our, our, in our mindset for Sky for All is as um, the FAA sets up infocentric NAS, that digital baseline infrastructure for that information, we see that as kind of Sky for All 1.0. And then beyond that, we can then go to 2.0, 3.0 that en enables more trusted autonomy and more operations that um, I think are things that we we can't even imagine yet. It's kind of like when the internet or all that started back in 1969, 1970, you know, we didn't really imagine we'd be, um, you know, managing our sure. heat. Um, uh, turning on our furnace before we got home. Or for me, I wash my chickens on my cameras when I'm away to make sure they made it in for the night. Got it. And so, um, you know, we didn't imagine all those things. And so that's kind of how we think about Sky for All. We don't know what to imagine yet, but the idea is how do we set up the architecture so that it can be open and adaptive over time. And one of the maybe fundamental presumptions here is that there is going to be increased growth of craft that do not have a human being inside them. So you're probably juggling between the idea, well, will it be remotely controlled so there's a human in the process, as drones typically are now, or at least military-sized ones, or will they actually be autonomous, and therefore they've got to have some intelligence aboard to avoid and so forth. And then there's this issue of the difference in performance. You know, a small drone delivering that pizza goes an order of magnitude slower than a, say, private airplane, which could be an order of magnitude slower than the jet nearby. 
so there's a lot of axes you have to do research on. Right, right. And and I think that that's where it gets down to the trusted autonomy, right? And so what are the performance? What are the standards that have to be in place? What are the protocols um, and rules for um, cooperative practices that need to be in place? And that's a lot of the research that um, NASA um, will need to do, um, working with our partners, the FAA, and with the industry to figure out how we develop standards that enable this mixed diverse um, sky that we anticipate in the future. Um, and, but it gets down to that trusted piece, you know, how can the data be secure? How can we um, uh, verify and validate that um, that operators are who they say they are and, and how they are operating in the sky? And so all that becomes, um, I think, a tricky part of the artificial intelligence machine learning and the human machine partnering. How do we decide when human machine partnering starts to shift uh, more to the machine? And, and to what degree? Does the vision include the maybe dissolving of the barriers among volumes, as you say? Like right now, amateur drones can't go near an airport. By the same token, a 737 can't fly 100 feet above a football field. This kind of thing. Everyone has their volume. Do you see that converging at some point? And can that be done in a safe way? Is that part of the research agenda here? Yes, that's definitely part of our plan. Um, our research wants to be focused on how the airspace can be more integrated um, but only segregated when necessary, and, and how it can be more flexible and only structured when necessary. And that allows the ability for us to optimize flight. Um, so that is, um, that's the dream. And so then figuring out how to enable that once we have the information available, can we stream the data in, um, a, with the speed and the certainty necessary then to be able to allow that integration to happen within a mixed volume. The way we envision, you know, autonomous or unmanned vehicles now is smallish or it gets to military size, which is a different issue. And they probably have the intelligence to operate. They do operate within aircraft range, jets and so on. But this idea of local air taxis, I just wanted to touch on that for a moment. Do you see that actually developing into reality? I mean, people have been talking about personal aircraft like that since the 50s. Yeah, it's kind of like the George Jetsons thing too, right? We all still have that mental picture. Um, I, I think that as we... Embark moving forward, I know the Department of Transportation is also starting a project on multi-modes of transportation and how can we optimize the door-to-door -door, um, travel of an individual, that air taxi just becomes a component upon that um, system. And that's why when we look at the vision for Sky, uh, um, Sky for All, that um, one of our um, main major principles is sustainability and resiliency, but also enhancing the quality of life. Um, enhancing the quality of life is then how do we help um, meet those optimization parameters, but also don't detract from, um, I guess, the neighborhood feel. I mean, I, I just saw a wing demonstration when I was in uh, Geneva, and um, I was surprised that the drones, once they reach a certain height, they kind of just disappear out of your, I guess, observable consciousness. And so um, I know people are worried that there are going to be a tons of uh, vehicles in the sky and we and it's going to be noisy and un, unmanageable but i think that this is a lot of why we're doing the demonstrations and trying to understand what it really means and this is why we have um, one of our principles is enhanced quality of life um, as well as sustainability so i'm um, getting back to your question on air taxis i do think air taxis will be a component they're already starting to be the question is then how will they make how will we make sure that their performance really does meet um 
those those goals of making uh, human lives better right and um, and do they um do they reduce the environmental footprint from other modes of transportation today and i think that's kind of the argument as well for um doordash deliveries or any kind of medical delivery or rural delivery i think drones being used for those um, purposes in, in emergency situations, it's easy to understand um, that that is a benefit. The question is, um, if people start using um, drones for more and more operations for delivery, does the environmental footprint story still hold? Where are people doing more deliveries than they would have otherwise? Those are, that's research I think ha has to be done. But the air taxi definitely, I think, fits into the scope of if it's um, more economical or more sustainable for a, an electric powered taxi to take uh, someone from A to B instead of a vehicle or a packet uh, or even a package to travel in an air taxi. Um, um, wouldn't we want that because it would be better from an overall um, environmental footprint and more sustainable way for us as a society? My guest is Gene Yu, Senior Technologist for the Sky for All program at NASA. We'll return with more of the interview after the short break. I'm Tom Temin. Tackling national challenges that continue to rise and change rapidly can be difficult. Noblis can help. Noblis brings together the best of science, technology, and engineering to solve complex challenges, like improving transportation and infrastructure systems, countering threats from weapons of mass destruction, and enhancing the operability of naval surface ships. For 25 years, Noblis has been an innovator with the federal government, investing in advanced R&D, enriching lives, and making our nation safer. Noblis, for the best of reasons. Visit NOBLIS org to learn more. Welcome back to our interview with Gene Yu, Senior Technologist for the Sky for All program at NASA. We're discussing NASA's efforts at helping multiple modes of aircraft safely operate in the shared skies of the future. And getting back to the larger research agenda, does it involve software systems? Does it involve technologies for tracking what's going on in the sky? What are some of the specific research areas that you envision in the next you know, year or so? Yeah, it's, it's yes, yes, and yes. It's going to be all of that. Um, I think it continues to focus on the concept of operations for new operations. What would those look like? And once you understand what those would look like, um, what is the hardware, software, infrastructure, um, the um, I, I think systems of systems is a huge um, area that I don't think you can do sky for all without. You will have to better understand network management and network design, as well as understanding how AI and ML helps you understand how to extrapolate that design in the architecture development. Because um, you can't test everything before you fly it, but you have to know enough and have, have to have models that you have simulated it well enough that you understand the scenarios and the possibilities well enough that you have designed into the system what you need to know. And so I think there's a, a lot of uh, work in the uh, systems, um, AI, ML, uh, as well as on, like you said, the integration efforts. How do, how do the systems talk to each other? How do systems um, communicate? Com communications, that's another one, right? Um, communications is a huge area for technology research. Um, more navigation capability. Um, that relies on uh, sensing, um, and then how do you integrate the sensing um, in a way with with information that you have, you know, the GPS from satellites as well as other intel that you can get from radars. I mean, all those things will have to be integrated. So we're really talking about systems of systems put together in a way that can inform us 
to how we can design the system or uh, systems of systems that is this vision, Sky for All. And what do you envision for the control system? I mean, right now, air traffic control is a direct linear descendant of what we had in the 1950s. It's been upgraded a lot, but it's basically a system of handoffs from one zone to another, those volumes. Do you see something different, different architecture, a different, more comprehensive way to understand what's going on in the airspace? Yeah, I do. I, I, I think there's some baby steps being taken towards that um, in in um, in some areas. Right now, like you said, air, air traffic control is um, relying on the traffic controllers and that volume to understand their volume and kind of what's and what's happening at the boundaries, but not without needing any knowledge outside of that. And so software and um, um, and this machine partnering with humans to provide the data that they needed, the salient data, because you don't want all the data. Too much data is too much. How could you get sufficient data um, across volumes and so that um, operators and um, humans can start to understand how to manage larger volumes more seamlessly? And I think that is kind of an organic growth to this integrated way to manage volumes that, you know, three volumes that become one or sure. five volumes that become, you know, three eventually over time. So we move from really human observation augmented by radar or GPS to really a data fabric that is the basis of the whole system. Yeah, that's a great way to describe it, Tom. It's it's really um it's a it's a data mesh that overlays data but also has intelligence to make sure the data that you need to know is in front of you because I don't it doesn't remove the human. What it does, though, is it arms a human with the information that they need. So someone could control any volume from anywhere, essentially. Yes, essentially. Who's going to do the research do you envision right now? Is it academia? Is it industry? Is it a combination of all of the above? Yeah, it's a combination of all of the above. And, and, and just in this adaptive architecture that, um, you know, I gave the example of the Internet, you know, no one, no one invented any piece or element of it, right, of, of what, what capability there is there now with regard to applications or how you could get to those applications. It was um, basically um, commercial interest um, and ideas, as well as um, researchers in academia and through, throughout research other research organizations. So we kind of imagine the same thing, is that how do you put together all the research data in an innovative research model that is open architecture that allows the architecture to adapt to what happens um, as the innovation um, evolves. And do you look for, under the Sky for All program, what possible workforce skills and workforce development will be needed? Because aviation is a really big, crucial industry. Yeah, I, I think that the um, the workforce skills will change. Um, humans remain an essential part and critical part of the system. I don't think that changes at all. I know people sometimes get scared off by the word of autonomy or automated. But in this case, the autonomy and automation is really to help deal with the complexity that is beyond um, one single person's brain, right? And so it's it's wiring together a number of brains in a way so that an individual can work with the benefit of that of that of that knowledge. So the skills, though, are definitely more systems of systems oriented, thinking in a systems of systems way. And I think that um, up to this point, and if you look at our education system, I mean, we're we're somewhat linear and siloed in the way we learn things. And so the question is. How can we start at the very beginning? I'm thinking even, you know, in, in elementary school for people thinking in an ecosystem way. In fact, one of the ways that we're thinking about Skyfall is ecosystem architecture and how does an ecosystem develop and, and become more adaptive and an ecosystem of systems development 
I think is um, is one of the key ways of thinking that um, it's a skill that I think can be enveloped inside of all the skill sets that exist today. And so I think that is um, the primary thing, if I would answer your question that way, that I think is going to be a big change for us. And what about the international aspects of this? Because air traffic control is an international operation, and maybe a pizza delivery drone won't go overseas, but you can imagine where you know, we are interoperating with craft that are unmanned or autonomous from other nations, and they from craft from our nation. Is that part of the thinking here under Sky for All? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. Um, I, as I mentioned um, in our pre-con, um, I um, just uh, returned from um, World ATM in, in, in Europe, and we're talking to Cesar um, and uh, Single European Skies. And we're talking to folks there um, to understand what they're doing. Um, we're trying to understand their language as we evolve our language, and they're trying to evolve their language to match our language. Because as, at the end of the day, they have to connect. Because if we're talking seamless skies, um, they have to find that interoperability. But if we went even further than interoperability, it's kind of how do we connect in a way that we're seamless? And so that's our goal, to continue that harmonization internationally as well. One of the big gambits in aviation now is to try to make it less carbon producing. And I think we're a long way from, you know, electric 747s. But a lot of the newer Envision craft are electric. And does the infrastructure to support that and to support greater electrification, if that's the case, or different fuel types for conventionally powered, you know, air breathing engines, is that part of the sky for all area or is that outside of this domain? You know, that's a great, great question, Tom. And we ask ourselves that too, because um, is it at the boundaries of Sky for All or is it essential for Sky for All? If you want to do total performance optimization and you know you will have more sustainable type aircraft and you know you need that infrastructure at the ports, whatever ports they are, vertiports, airports, then is it really outside the boundaries of that? And I, I don't think we know the answer to that yet, but we do know that um, – well, I think I think it's going to have to be included. We don't know for sure, but but because if you want to do optimization of preparing those aircraft and do planning for them, that charging is an essential part of it. And so I don't think we will be building electric charging stations, but at the boundary of what the what the necessary components are will be for that air to perform, um, the air skies to perform in the way that we want, we will need to have the right connections to at at, at those boundaries. And just to wind up the conversation about the Sky for All program itself, just tell us where does it live within the NASA panoply of organizations and how many people do you have and what are the timelines or, you know, immediate agendas going on? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the most complicated question. <laughs> no. Um, right now, um, Sky for All is an ARMD, um, uh, um, Aeronautics Research Mission Directorate um, um uh, investigation into what what we think is possible and how we want to organize and what we want to do as we go forward. And so um, currently we are um, working within the Air Space Operations and Safety Program to try to understand what components need to be put together. But what we're realizing is it's going to take all the centers, it's going to take all kinds of research, and it's going to take um, working across the industry as well. So it becomes... Um, it becomes um, a mission with a, a necessary collaborative research that will have to be compiled together. So I think right now we're at the very beginning of um, we're only 25 years away plus, but um, we're at the beginning of figuring out how to get 
organized in a way that we can allow it to grow um, with research from many entities coming into one one centering point. Gene Yu, Senior Technologist for the Sky for All program at NASA. To hear this interview again or share it with colleagues, please visit Federal News Network. Thank you for listening to the discussion, Tackling Government Challenges Through Science and Technology, sponsored by Noblis on Federal News Network.